It's Tuesday, April 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Thrilled to be here, Chris. We have stocks for the great reopening. We've got fallout from the Archegos Capital debacle. And I think it's safe to call it a debacle at this point. Um, but we're going to start with Tops. Yes, Tops, the company best known for baseball cards and bazooka gum, is going public with Mudrick Capital Acquisition Corp. So, yes, people, we have another smack on our hands. Michael Eisner, who used to be uh, the person running the Walt Disney Corporation, is the chairman of Tops. Eisner is going to remain in that position. You tell me, Asa, can I interest you in a few shares of Tops? Yeah, I'm interested. You know, Chris, I sometimes make fun of, of so many SPACs that are coming out. We all do. We talk about SPACy stocks. But to me, this was spaculous because <laughs> <laughs> it gives you an entry into the collectibles market. Now, there are some publicly traded uh, collectibles companies. Funko comes to mind. They make those great bobblehead uh, collectibles you can purchase online or, or in stores. But the opportunity to, in base, to invest in baseball uh, card collectibles is really neat. You know, Tops is not a small company anymore. It's been around for uh, decades. Sales last year rose 23% year over year to 567 million bucks. Um, this is going to be uh, not an immaterial deal. The company will have about 571 million in cash from the merger. I really like that Tops is branching out into the most cutting-edge type of collectibles. They're into NFTs, non-fungible tokens. For those of you who are crypto enthusiasts, they have digital collectibles. I think last month, they introduced a Godzilla NFT collectible. So this is not your, your father, your grandfather's tops anymore. And, and this is what I like about SPACs. As much as I, I make fun of them personally sometimes, they're giving you opportunities, us as investors, opportunities to take part in sectors of the economy that we might not be able to. Uh, SPACs have introduced a lot of us to new avenues into alternative investments. And the collectibles market is an alternative investment avenue that I've been interested for a long time. What about you, Chris? You're going to invest in this one or at least look at it? Uh, I, I'm going to look at this one, but I, I think you raise um, an interesting and important point, which is we talk all the time about different businesses in different industries that have optionality. And some businesses are really able to capitalize on their optionality opportunities, and others it's a theoretical optionality. Um, in the case of of Tops, I like that they're I like that they're doing this um, because I think it's easy for people who are not collectible enthusiasts, and I think a lot of people are not collectible enthusiasts. I think it's easy to look at them and just, in the case of Tops, just say, "Oh." It's baseball cards. Or in the case of Funko Holdings, uh, which we talked about recently on Motley Fool Money, you, you look at it and you say, oh, well, it's, it, it's those little uh, bobbleheads that collect dust on the wall. Like, who, who would want that? But if Funko is any indication of, of where Tops could go as a public company, I, I think it's, it's worth looking at. I mean, Funko Holdings is up more than 500% in the past year. And the optionality in that business is essentially all of pop culture. And in the case of Tops, 
you can look at baseball and just say, well, who, who cares about baseball cards? Well, first of all, a lot of people do. Um, but secondly, the fact that they are expanding beyond that, I think that alone um, merits interest. Well, that, and we shouldn't forget, I think something like 30% of the company's revenue comes from confectionery brands like Ring Pop. Who could forget Ring Pop? Also, Bazooka Bubblegum. So, this is a company that's pretty diversified. Although, I will say, you know, that confectionery business is not going to grow at the rate that some of the other revenue streams are growing at. No, that's true. Although, there's, there is something, I, I don't know. I mean, we, when we talk about disruption, like who's going to disrupt it? Like, who's going to disrupt Ring Pop? Who's going to disrupt gum? Like, like, and I think gum is here to stay. I think ring pops are too. I know it's not the growth engine for this business, but uh, maybe it's more of the steady, reliable part of the business. Yeah, core revenue. Last week, Credit Suisse said it was expecting heavy losses in the wake of Archegos Capital's hedge fund melting down. And today, we got some more color around those losses. Investment Bank CEO Brian Chin is stepping down, effective immediately, and he should. Chief Risk Officer Laura Warner is also stepping down immediately, and she should. This is a $4.7 billion charge that Credit Suisse is taking because of this debacle. They're expecting a loss in the quarter of close to a billion dollars. And I'm sorry, if you're the chief risk officer, you have one job, and it is to lower the risk profile for the bank's portfolio. And I'm assuming Ms. Warner has invested well and um, does not need employment immediately. Because I can't imagine how she's going to get another job with that title as chief risk officer with this on her resume. Chris, there are so many risk officers around Wall Street that would do well to, to listen to what you just said. You have one job. How hard? I know it's, it's easy for us on one hand to say, how hard can it be? But truly, this isn't that difficult when you look at losses that are the magnitude of, of what you said, $4.7 billion. When the dust settles over this whole debacle, and you, you and Jason talked about this recently on the show, the focus is going to shift a little bit from the obscurity of a so-called family office, which isn't subject to as much of disclosure as your typical hedge fund. Attention is going to shift over to the institutions that were buying securities on behalf of the family office. And to repeat a phrase that you said, and it, it should, the attention should shift just because one part of the investment world is a little bit opaque doesn't mean that companies which are institutions uh, trading on behalf of clients, essentially giving credit to these clients, that they don't have this obligation to assess their counterparty risk anymore, that they don't have an obligation to do their due diligence or to monitor their own exposure relative to the rest of their business. These are such big numbers, it makes you wonder, what were these people thinking? Um, I do understand that it's difficult to see how big a book a family office is trading in when you are just supplying one part of that at the same time. You know, there's a point at which you say, we, we don't need all of this exposure. We can make money elsewhere. You have to really reward the opportunity cost of getting just a little bit 
greedy on the trading fees and the interest that you can make off of an arrangement like this. And I, I frankly was stunned to see some of the numbers that are you know, slowly trickling out among the institutions. But it makes you wonder, this is not the first go-round for companies like Credit Suisse. In fact, Credit Suisse was already uh, under some heavy fire for bad risk management last year. Um, and, and the year before that, I'm thinking of, of luck and coffee. So we'll see how this finally plays out. I know there'll be more regulation around this whole idea of the, the private family office, which has not had the disclosure rules that are, are as robust as hedge funds. But this seems to be just pattern behavior for these type of types of institutions. I wonder, will they ever learn? So Thomas Gottstein, who's the CEO at Credit Suisse, um, I think he is saying and doing all of the right things, all of the things that you would want if you were a shareholder, um, in terms of uh, you know the people responsible are walking out the door, um, and and the comments that he made in terms of how seriously they're taking this. I I I think you can take him at face value that they're taking this very seriously. That said, the stock's down more than twenty percent over the past month. You know, with this loss, I don't. There's nothing in this business's history that makes me think this is a screaming buy opportunity for Credit Suisse. I, I just, you know, you look at a, a chart of their stock over the last twenty years. It looks like a roller coaster. There are just, you know, yeah, there are stretches of time when this was a good stock to buy and then sell later. But over the long term, this is a stock that's lost money for long-term shareholders. And I'm not wishing them ill, but I don't think there's anything going on right now that moves Credit Suisse onto someone's watch list. Yeah, I could see those people who are just extreme value players Taking positions here, and you know, I to be honest, I mean, I can also see lots of other types of investors taking positions. You don't have to be an extreme value investor to buy this company at this point in time. But for many of us, the, the question is like, why should I roll the dice? I mean, what if they start uh, making uh, pretty decent profits again and work their way out of this? You know, what's what's the payoff? Maybe in three to five years, something else goes wrong or, or blows up. And I, I do agree with you. <clears throat> Gottstein said that Credit Suisse remains a formidable institution with a rich history. He also said, serious lessons will be learned, which almost has the ring of mistakes were made. Not, we're, we're going to learn these lessons, but they serious lessons will be learned. I hate that passive voice in situations like this. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I, yeah, let me take let me let me amend what I said earlier. He's saying almost all the right things. Almost, You're right. Yeah. The, pa- the passive with you the passive <laughs> voice is not great. He's, um, he's doing the right things, as you pointed out. He's doing a lot of the right things. So Credit Suisse, uh, uh, I don't think is a stock idea to to go on someone's watch list. But for anyone looking for more stock ideas, if you haven't already, check out Motley Full Stock Advisor. It is our flagship service. You get recommendations from Tom and David Gardner. You get their best buys now and a lot more. Just go to stockideas.fool.com and you get 50% off just for being one of the dozens of listeners. Again, that's stockideas.fool.com. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. 
question from Shannon in New Hampshire, who writes, a lot of people are talking about airlines and cruise lines benefiting from the reopening. What is an under-the-radar company or industry that's not getting as much attention that you think will benefit? Uh, I like this question because uh, she's right. There is a lot of talk about airlines and cruise lines, although, uh, as Jason and I talked about yesterday, you look at uh, the trouble Delta Airlines had over the weekend, and they're not the only airline that's having trouble scaling back up. But, Asit, when you think about the world opening back up again, what are you know one or two companies or industries that you think, you know, not a lot of people are talking about this, and I think this is one that could benefit? Well, you know, airlines are hard, Chris, because they're so leveraged. But how about airline or airport that is operators? How about Mexican airport operators? Our listener did say she wanted to go under the radar. So let's That's, go really yes. under the radar. I, I like a company called Grupo Aeroportuario del Pacifico, easier found by its symbol, PAC. This is a... Mexican airport operator. They manage 12 domestic Mexican uh, airports, as well as two international ones in Jamaica. And they make their money when there's a lot of traffic flowing through airports, because on the tickets that we buy, there are passenger fees that are allotted to that ticket. So, they get a slice of every uh, customer or traveler that's transiting through each of their airports. As you can expect, 2020 was not a good year for Grupo Aeroportario del Pacifico. Their volumes, um, they've been brutal. The last quarterly report I saw, Chris, volume was down about 44% in this most recently reported quarter versus the prior year. But they have this built-in advantage in that the uh, airport industry is sort of regulated in Mexico. So, they have just a few companies that basically have monopolies over several airports each. As life gets back to normal and traffic and volume through these airports increases, they'll make money on fees. They'll also make more of their ancillary income in the form of leasing airport space for retail and concessions, um, operating some long-term car rental lots, and the like. So, I like this idea a lot. This is a, a company that's been a little volatile over the past three to four years, but has done very, very well if you look back over a 10-year period. Um, it's trading at around 27 times forward earnings because in good times, it does tend to, to do very well. I think it's an interesting play. It is under the radar, but not as leveraged as your typical airline or uh, cruise ship operators. I like it a little better than, than those ideas. I like that. I like you know the, the there are a lot of businesses out there that are if they're not built entirely on this uh, part of their revenue stream is we get a little slice <laughs> we get a little right. slice of everything so, you know I mean you could look at Apple with the App Store uh, although I would argue Apple gets a slightly bigger slice uh, in terms of the App Store revenue but okay um, anything else. Yeah, so uh, let's also think a little bit outside of the box here. How about the home building industry, residential home building? So maybe the connection isn't quite as clear here, but just to look at the big picture, after the Great Recession, most of the home builders in the US pulled back. I mean, they were badly damaged by that. And we have now a situation in which residential housing is chronically underbuilt. 
we went into last year with a supply shortage of about two and a half million units across the country. So what's happened now? First, during COVID, people again fell in love with the concept of owning a home. And now we come into 2021 and find that there is a tremendous amount of demand for new houses, but not a lot of supply. So I like the home builders industry. In particular, I like one of the biggest home builders that is Lennar Corp. Uh, symbol is L-E-N. Uh, this is a company that has a backlog in the billions. It is seeing deliveries up year over year about 19%. It's seeing its new orders of homes up about 26%. Uh, if you look year over year for the most recently quarter that they reported, um, this is also a company that invests a lot in technology. They're, they've been trying to go capital light by owning less land than they used to. So a lot of good stuff to, to like here. They also have a lending arm, which will help them in terms of diversifying the revenue. So as people now uh, leave COVID behind and feel more emboldened to make long-term decisions, this is an industry where the demand and supply dynamics are just really favorable for a three to five year purchase. And there are a lot of good home builders out there, but I particularly like Lennar just because it's trying to go capital light, has a little bit better of a technological technology technology stack, excuse me. Um, so yeah, this is good, but you can look at uh, other big home builders. I think as a group, they're going to do well. Last thing I'll say about this, it's trading at just 10 times forward one-year earnings. It's an ignored group. Again, if we're going under the radar, um, this deserves some attention from investors. I think if I'm remembering correctly, Lennar is uh, the one that when they reported earnings uh, this most recent quarter, their management was really bullish on 2021. And now that you mention it, I'm wondering how many people are avoiding home builders because they vividly remember the Great Recession and they think, well, the housing market is really hot right now all over the country. And the last time it was this hot, it was a bubble that exploded. I don't know. I mean, that's that's one of those things where it's there's there's no way of knowing what the answer is. But I I find that the the conversations that I've had over the past couple of months around housing with people, just you know, just average conversations, the people I'm talking to connect the dots in that way. It's boy, I know someone who's trying to buy a house and in this part of the country. Oh my god, it's crazy! And then they just. I, I'm not the one bringing it up there. They're like, oh, yeah, and you know, the last time this happened, good, you know, everything went to hell. It's like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we're in the same situation that we were in last time. I think the housing market, I think what's fueling the housing market right now is not a huge number of people who shouldn't be buying houses or buying houses. Very astute points, uh, all of them. Yeah, we had different factors last time that uh, caused everything to overheat and then crash. But, you know, we should look at the risk factors this time around. So, rising interest rates could be one because uh, if mortgage rates do keep rising, that could cool off the market a bit. And I, I like your, your point also in general about this industry. Because people are a bit scared, that's part of what's driving this lower multiple versus other industries. So, is it the glass half empty or half full? If you think it's half full, then 
you're okay maybe holding for a few years and letting the market come to this industry once it's rotated out of um, other sectors. Now, if you think the glass is, is um, maybe that's half full, but if you think that this risk is a little too much to take, then you may be onto something that there is a cyclical element to the industry. If that comes into play again, uh, maybe the, the profits will go down. Certainly rising interest rates could cause that. And in that case, the multiples will stay pretty flat. So you, this is one that, that you do have to have a balanced look at. I tend to be on the optimistic side just because of that um, equation of so much demand that's out there and so little supply. I think that will trump in the end um, a temporary rise in interest rates for sure. And it will trump some other cyclical factors as well. Um, a fun industry to watch, Chris, over the next, I would say, three to five years. Asa Sharma, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.